So this class is on the Beatitudes. I'm just going to cover the first three Beatitudes on this class. So why don't we begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he had sat down, his disciples came to me, came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. The gospel of the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ. So, this class, in case you miss that, is on the Beatitudes. So, I'm going to have two classes on the Beatitudes. And then, um, what is after that? Oh, Models of the Church. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Models of the Church. Um, that's kind of a scripture class, but also um, the theology of church, which I really like. Most Protestants don't have a theology of the church, even though there's one in the Bible. There's actually like eight different models of church, what church is in the Bible, so we'll discuss that. And then after that, just um, going to have church architecture. Really, I'm going to start with pale, neo, yeah, Paleolithic times, but that's more of a fun summer class. Um, so, on to the Beatitudes. Um, the first question, I guess, is that um, the Beatitudes are blessings, but you have to ask yourself, well, what technically is a blessing? Why do priests bless things? Um, and the problem is the word when Jesus said, blessed are, and this drives me up a wall, but this is why I'm balding, because everything drives me up a wall. Um, is some people will mistranslate that as happy. Um, I like to joke that the Bible doesn't care if you're happy. Um, actually, that's not really fair, I know. But um, it's not really, it can be translated happy, but um, it really means God's happiness, not pleasure, uh, which is part of the word that we hear when we say the word happy today. Um, but if you do translate it happy, happy for what? Um, because, you know, you know the old joke. Did you guys hear that country song a couple of years ago I loved where the guy says, oh, when I was 17, all I wanted to be happy was a truck and a beautiful, um, then I wanted to be happy. Did you guys ever hear that? You're not going to get to heaven unless you listen to a certain amount of, <laughs> no, no. St. Peter said, you have to listen to so much country music. But, um, you know, he said, then just children, then this, then that. Um, and then he ends up with, uh, it's nothing to make him happy is the last verse. It's about other people. Because if you say, well, I just can't be happy. All I need is money. And then you discover, you know, what's next after that. Um, so none of those stuff really bring happiness. Um, in fact, I know I mentioned this, but... The ancient Greeks believed that if you try and make your life about happiness, you will never be happy. Modern psychologists have found that if your goal in life is to be happy, you'll never be happy. <laughs> so this sounds kind of strange. Um, like Socrates and Plato and um, Aristotle, they use the word eudaimonia, 
which is a Greek word. You is E-U. Do you know another word that starts with E-U? Oh, you guys are brilliant. Um, which te technically means, we translate it as thanksgiving, but it means uh, good offering. Anytime you have the E-U, that means good. So eudaimonia doesn't mean happiness. It means good soul. So the Greek philosophers taught that, oh, if you want to be happy, you aim your life at having a good soul. Don't you love that? Um, and so they'd say, oh, no, you, you get happiness as a byproduct of working on a good soul. So I don't mind happy, but happy and blessed are not necessarily the same thing. In the Hebrew, a blessing in Hebrew is something that brings you closer to the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was a place of unity, shalom with God and other people. That's what a blessing is. Or Martin Buber, this famous Jew, um, translated the Hebrew as fortune. And he said, um, a blessing is something that makes your life better, whether you can see it now or not. So he wrote, the Beatitudes describe a view of reality in which the least likely candidates are revealed to be extremely fortunate in the divine economy of things. Not only later, but right now. They're fortunate because they share in the values of an Eden existence, even though their current culture values the opposite. And I just like that. So a blessing is something that brings you closer to this Eden-like existence, heaven. So if you're poor in spirit, you know the blessedness of embracing God in your life. And you don't need more things or Amazon packages to make you fulfilled. Um, because you know how Eden works. If you're hungry, uh, you know the blessedness of sharing what little you have. Because that's how Eden works. If you're weeping, you know the blessedness of giving comfort and solace to other people who are grieving. Because that's how Eden works. If you're hated, hated and pushed to the margins because of your nationality or culture or gender, you know the blessedness of standing up for justice in God's kingdom. Because that's how Eden works. Rejoice and leap for joy, Jesus says, because the kingdom of heaven begins with such blessedness. And so in the Greek, the word for blessedness, and I love this word, is makarius. Um, you can, once again, translate that happy, but it's not happy. It's kind of, happy always means material things in our language. Makarius, it means you know the things that create eudaimonia, a good soul. Or in Hebrew, it's ashray. Now, um, asher is, in Hebrew, how you say um, either well-being or th uh, thriving, so sometimes you'll hear people say, oh, the word asher means happy. That actually means thriving. And so a blessing is something that helps you thrive in this Eden-like existence, which does bring happiness. But the word for a blessing, like singular, the root word uh, in Hebrew is brk, which um, if you say is blessed, but it also means to bend the knee. To bend the knee means a type of detachment so that you can receive a blessing that attaches yourself to God. A blessing detaches yourself from just you and attaches yourself to God and other 
people. So I love that. So we're just going to study Matthew today, Matthew's Beatitudes. Remember, there's Matthew's Beatitudes and Luke's Beatitudes. We're in the year of studying the Gospel of Matthew, so God bless Luke, but you had your chance last year. <laughs> um, and just to start off, Luke's Beatitudes are different. Like Luke's first Beatitude is, blessed are you poor. Um, that's an exact population. Matthew's first beatitude are, blessed are the poor in spirit. That actually means a way of life. The other thing that I want to mention is Matthew, and this is a huge theme. You know how I used to make a lot of jokes last year about the Gospel of Luke, that Jesus' favorite word, and true, is hospitality. Jesus is very Italian. He loves to drink and celebrate and show hospitality, all that's great. But Matthew is very Jewish, and Jews always think in community. So the Gospel of Matthew, and I'm going to say this 10,000 times, is community, community, community. He always thinks not as an individual, but as a community. And so the Beatitudes are written in the plural. So it's not blessed are you, Glenn. It's blessed is St. Pius. It's, it's us. And this sounds kind of strange, but um, this sounds, I hope I'm not boring you, but um, the Beatitudes are written about what's called the economy of the house. So anytime the word house comes up in the Bible, let me explain what a house is. A house is not the four walls that you live in. Bet in Hebrew, it doesn't mean house. It means how a family works. So it's not the architectural structure, it's how the whole family works together. And the Beatitudes and the whole Gospel of Matthew is a description of how the system works, how the community of heaven operates. Uh, that's how we're supposed to work. The Roman house, in the sense of the Roman Empire, it worked by patrimony, where... Um, it's being subservient to an authoritarian system. And the system works by power and money. Um, the Beatitudes, they're supposed to reorder the house, the way we work in the world. So when it says like John and James left their father and their boat, that they left their house, it doesn't mean they left you know, their address. It means they left their way of working in the world for a whole different way. So house describes culturally how uh, society works. So the Beatitudes, what they're really describing is how Christ wants the church to work. So even in the Old Testament, I do like this. Um, everybody ignores this part, but they're kind of nice. You have Genesis, then Exodus, and then you have numerous... Uh, numbers in Deuteronomy, and you get into these tiny little rules and regulations, which are great to make jokes at, but um, they're really great because, like Jesus, sorry, God uh, gives endless chapters on how to worship. God gives endless chapters on how to build the temple, and then God gives endless chapters, it seems, on how the economy is supposed to work. <laughs> That's bizarre. And the reason why is that don't really necessarily take those literally. And I know like, it's like 
Yes, you're supposed to feed those who are hungry without food. But the society is also supposed to work, the house of God, the bet of God, is supposed to work that the poor, if you, if you work hard, you can escape poverty. That was the first society in human history, the Jews, that had it work where uh, God commanded, no, there's poverty. If you're hungry, we'll feed you. But for the poor, um, we create a system where they can escape uh, poverty. The Roman Empire didn't work that way. And so Matthew, very, being very Jewish, is community, community, community. The Beatitudes are a system. And so Jesus says at the end of the Beatitudes, anyone who hears these words and builds that house is a wise one. Anyone who ignores these words and does not build that house is like someone who built a house on sand. It'll all fall apart. Does that make any sense? Uh, and so my point being is that this is for a community. It's not blessed is one person but blessed is all of us here at St. Pius if we live this way of life. Um, and you have the opposite of each blessing comes a curse. It moves you away from community. It moves you away from community into the wasteland. And so cursed are the rich who want to take more and more just for themselves. They move away from paradise. Cursed are those who never feel other people's suffering or never feel any guilt. They're moving away from Eden. Cursed are the powerful who try to own the country and ruin it for themselves. Um, so every time you translate, blessed are you, um, you could translate it, blessed are you when you're standing in the right place with all those who practice poverty of spirit and meekness. And so it's, this, the Beatitudes are for a society, a church, not personal development. And so Matthew's contrasting the way heaven works, the way the church is supposed to work, and the way the Roman Empire works. And you might as well learn how heaven and start practicing it now. We might as well start practicing the way of heaven now. That's what the church is supposed to be. So Matthew's very Jewish. Um, it's about community. And the Christ came to bring about the true Israel. Judaism had become corrupt. That's why like the scenes moved out into the desert. They're really honest about their own corruption. And the one person who can clean up the corruption was going to be Christ. And so the prophets say when the Christ comes, he's going to purify religion. He's going to purify religion and even open up Judaism to the Gentiles. And so the same way Moses goes up on the mountain to offer his teachings. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus goes up into the mountain, and if you're Jewish, you'd realize, oh, it's paralleling Moses' teaching on the mountain. This is the way the whole of us are supposed to work, that we're supposed to work together. So, like one famous televangelist translated the Beatitudes as the be happy attitudes, which makes me want to vomit. Um, <laughs> You know, because it's a way to make you, the singular individual, um, happy and wealthy. That's what his whole program was about. You want to become wealthy? The Beatitudes will show you how. I really think that type of interpretation is not just wrong. I think it's evil. 
Because the Beatitudes aren't supposed to make you better than society. It's supposed to make society better through you. So it's a description of what the church and our parish is supposed to act like. That's why at the end of the sermon, Jesus warns about false prophets that will teach the opposite of the Beatitudes and then call that religion. They'll say, blessed are the powerful, the devious, the rapacious, the greedy. Jesus basically points is that the Beatitudes, these eight Beatitudes, are the essence of his teaching. And those who build their lives uh, on this is like somebody who's building their house on rock. Um, so, uh, anyhow, uh, the Beatitudes in one sense are in Matthew. The laws of Christ, uh, they describe not only how heaven works, but also the personality of God. Um, and so, I love that. The other thing is, you'll always get this in Gospel of Matthew. He doesn't say kingdom of God. He says the kingdom of heaven. Because heaven is God. And heaven is a place where we're united with each other, with angels, and with God. So, in Matthew, there's no personal heaven or personal nirvana. Heaven is community. That's why I hate when... They mistranslate it. In heaven, there are many mansions. You're going to get a mansion, and you're going to give a mansion. God is Oprah, and you're going to get a mansion. Um, no. What heaven is, when it says that, nah. Uh, there's one mansion, and it's all of us united together. Um, that's why he says kingdom of heaven. It's us. It's Matthew is community, community, community. The other thing I just like, and I... Don't want to bore you, but I just love this. Matthew is very concerned about your actions. Jews are more concerned about orthopraxy than orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is um, what you say. What you, you tell me what you believe. That's orthodoxy. Orthopraxy is you tell me how you live. Uh, so very Jewish is talk is cheap. <laughs> Show me how you live. And so like the word Matthew, Matthai, means gift from God. And in the Beatitudes, well, the entire gospel, it's very clever. Matthew keeps playing with his own name. So the name Matthew means gift from God. But then he says, Matthias, one who is taught. But then he then changes the word into Matthias, which is one who puts teaching into action. One who does uh, teaching. Um, and what's remarkable, and this, I don't want to, well, because I'm obnoxious, I'm going to oversell this, is that the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus never says a single word on what you're supposed to believe. He only says words on what you're supposed to do. Because this is my feeling, in the last couple decades, people have been over-concerned about orthodoxy, that you're not orthodoxy. And, uh, you know, like they're just, their teeth are set on edge to accuse somebody of uh, lack of orthodoxy. The opposite of that is the Gospel of Matthew. I don't really care what you have to say, what you believe about God. Matthew, Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, I want to see how you live. That's orthopraxy. Does that make sense? And so the Gospel of Matthew starts with the Beatitudes, and the Beatitudes, as I said, is not orthodoxy. It's orthopraxy. And the first one is 
Blessed are the poor in spirit. Poverty of spirit. Now this is the only one where God's Christ says, you do this and you will be blessed now. I love that. You're not just going to get blessed in heaven for practicing that. Your life is better right here and now when you practice poverty of spirit. And remember, it's not blessed are the poor. Now, this is, sounds really strange. That should strike you as strange because the gospel of Matthew's community is already poor. Matthew is writing his gospel for poor Jews. Luke is writing his gospel for wealthy Gentiles. So why doesn't Matthew say, blessed are the poor? Because his community's poor. Why doesn't he say that? Okay, so let me tell you. Because um, I thought it was obvious. But, um, so you know I worked as a missionary for a couple years with the poor, which I loved. Don't want to ever do. I'm really meant to be a parish priest, but it was really eye-opening to see what real poverty looks like, and it is not here in the United States. Um, but here's the other part that shocked me, is I was kind of surprised, because you always hear about greedy Americans. Guess what I found in some poor places in the world? Greedy poor people. <laughs> that sounds strange, but the poor, they can be greedy as well. You know what I mean? They can be just as rapacious. So, yeah, Matthew's community is poor, but they can be greedy as well. So, blessed are the poor means there's no greed. Even if we're poor, we don't already think that money can fulfill me, that you're detached. In the Old Testament, they give this image of God as God is absolute poverty. Now, you should ask yourself, that's a strange description of God as absolute poverty, why is God described as absolute poverty in the Old Testament? Because God is absolute generosity. God can't help but give life. And so um, God doesn't, he's more concerned about giving and giving and giving. And so like uh, in my former parish, there's this woman um, uh, worked for this thing called Cross, which helps internationally. Um, but so it's kind of strange. It really funnels money. So let's say you're, you guys have an orphanage. It's Catholic. Um, we'll funny, funnel money to you, but you're like the order of, I don't know, the dancing pants. Um, and like, Does that make any sense? So it's not Cross's orphanage. Technically, it's yours. Does that make sense? But there's this one woman in my parish who had a little tiny orphanage in Korea. Now, here's the amazing part. So she was American, uh, well, she grew up in an orphanage in Korea, um, did very well, well, no, I shouldn't say very well, but did fairly well in the United States. So she took a part-time job as a cashier. Um, well, she did pretty well in the United States. She started this orphanage in Korea because she was an orphan and she really loves, the, she has no kids or family, so these, this tiny orphanage she supports with her money. But to help it um, uh, from week to week, she took a part-time job as a cashier, which gets her to see people. She said it's really easy. And all the money she makes the cashier really pays for the monthly bills of that tiny orphanage. So to me, that's an image of poor in spirit. She's not working the extra job so that she can have another you know, Mercedes-Benz or something, it's all poured out. When it says God is absolute poverty, the Korean woman 
She's an example of that. The poor in spirit, they don't fool themselves that their um, money will make them happy. Even if they have money, they don't fool it. Does that make sense? So it's not about having money. It's not about being poor or being rich. It's about poor in spirit means I'm just in, I'm generous. I, I never thought money would make me happy. Um, the other part is uh, the poor in spirit don't fool themselves that they're above and untouchable. Because a lot of people think if they have money, then they'll be safe, right? But let me tell you, this is what I've learned in life. We are all one medical diagnosis away from poverty. And really, like, you get the wrong disease, even with insurance. If it's one of these slow ones, like my dad had, that the insurance will pay for 80 or 90%, medical costs get really expensive. Does that make sense? So we're all vulnerable. So even if you lost all your wealth, if you practice poor in spirit, you'll still be happy because that was never the source of my happiness. Uh, those who are successful and accomplished don't let their success blind them. That's poverty in spirit. They're not seduced easily into their own fan club. They're not seduced in the propaganda of being su successful. Uh, so, you know, like uh, somehow if you have money, you're better. Now, I have to admit, because I'm an awful human being, let's not argue this point, um, I use that to my advantage in this way. Like, so, um, this is awful, but sometimes if I'm making a, re uh, like I did this with some friends. I made a reservation because we we're going to go to a restaurant, and when they called us, they said, Dr. McMillan? <laughs> they said, well, you lied. And I said, no, because I knew we'd get better service if I said, Dr. McMillan. Like, <laughs> You know, it's true. I'm sorry, it's true. And my point being is that, no, the restaurant does not work on blessed are the poor in spirit. You, um, they think that somehow I'm better. I'm not the one who is buying into this propaganda. They are. Does that make sense? You get better service. And don't use my trick because I don't want you to get ahead of me on the reservations. Um, but think about this. Blessed are the poor in spirit are the ones who are detached from all that. And this is the part that amazes me. Of the major monotheistic religions, you'll find this as a common denominator. Buddhism teaches detachment. Taoism teaches detachment. Carmelite spirituality, Catholic. You know, that whole idea of nada. You know, everything's nothing. Uh, you might as well detach. It doesn't matter. Franciscan spirituality, the idea of poverty, is detachment from the world so you can truly be attached to God. So, one, it's not about being poor. Two, it's really poverty of spirits is detachment from this idea that success and money and wealth make me happy. The third one is poverty of spirit is this great need for God. This is like I love living this way. Um, I love living where well, I don't live this way. I used to love living where I could put everything I own in my car and drive away, just in case Gina insults me again. Um, <laughs> but I I love keeping a minimum amount of stuff. But unfortunately, now I have um, too much stuff and need a U-Haul. Um, 
But in all honesty, like my the big items that I have, I could easily walk away. Everything that's important to me, I can load my car in one hour and drive out. All I really care about is my T-shirts and <laughs> like really, I have a very minimum. Um, that's my I spend way too much money on T-shirts, but. Um, uh, everything important to me, I can load up in my car. And somebody once gave me a compliment that, oh, I just like how frugal your life is. And truth be known, it's that way because what I really enjoy, I really enjoy. I have this black sweater I absolutely love. I have a blue coat I absolutely love. Um, like I know that sounds kind of strange. I don't want more than one coat. I don't want more. Uh, it, but here's the thing. I was thinking about this when somebody said, oh, I like that, how frugal you live. And I was, when I was doing my exam at the end of the day, it kind of depressed me when they said that. You know why? No, it wasn't about the lack of things. It was, oh, because at first I thought, oh, I do like living that way, but that's just me. What depressed me was, no, I, none of that stuff can make me happy because the love of my life is Christ. Does that make sense? So when I did the exam that day, I kind of thought, oh. It's like I frequently at the end of the day say, you, Christ, you are my one possession. You're the love of my life. I usually go off on this love thing on Christ at the end of the day that that's all I really need. My greatest desire is not for more stuff, but only this love affair between me and Christ. Um, Christ is my sole lasting possession. Um, I do want to be totally reliant on God. And so poverty of spirit is aware that the only real lasting treasure we have is Christ. And if you don't realize that now, you're really in a lot of problems because we are one medical diagnosis away from losing everything. But if Christ is my one possession, I'm never going to lose. And so the opposite of that is being rich in spirit which is rich in spirit means ah, the one thing I need is God and other people, which I have. Does that make sense? So um, I tell you what. Um, oh, I went a little too long on that. But what I wanted to do at end, the end of every beatitude is trying to think of one person um, that you know in your life who practices poverty of spirit. So uh, mine are... St. Martin de Porres. Um, you think I'd say St. Francis, who I like, but really the one saint ever since I was a little kid who was always, always with me was St. Martin de Porres, who um, was kind of a St. Francis of uh, South America. So I always say one Hail Mary to him every day. So, but, and I have another friend who really does. He, he's done financially very well but he practices poverty of spirit. So who in your life do you know really exemplifies poverty of spirit? Here's my other question. Have you ever seen a whole parish where people have practiced poverty of spirit? Does that make sense? Because um, remember, Matthew is community, community, community. And one of the things, I'll give a compliment to St. Pius. When I came here, I realized, wow, they do a lot for the poor. Um, not, we're not really a super wealthy parish. We're not Pebble Beach or 
no offense, Meridian. Meridian. Meridian was, when I was there, the wealthiest parish. We had 10 million in the bank account. Um, I know I wish I would have spent it. Um, <laughs> but I do have to say, I, I like the fact that this parish is very, very generous with the poor. Uh, okay, moving on to a second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn. Um, so I want, like, oh, I also want, like, I do this because I'm weird, but I pray 49 uh, Hail Marys every afternoon, and each one is for a different virtue. So I do seven of the Beatitudes, because I, I like the number seven. But how about this? As long as we're having that class, take up my practice. Each day, say one Hail Mary for each of the Beatitudes. So I also say a Hail Mary for blessed are those who mourn. Um, and I put a color with each Beatitude when I'm praying it. I know I'm weird. But so brown, poverty of spirit, St. Francis. Um, uh, I know I'm kind of strange. Uh, blessed are those who mourn. I give the color gray. Um, uh, but mourn, think about this. I'm, there is a blessing to mourning. And the first blessing is, I know this sounds strange, mourning our own sins. So look at the story of the, what's called the prodigal son. Remember, it's a story of a son who had everything. And he thought he'd be, uh, he couldn't be happy living with his father. And all the son wanted was wealth and popularity to make him happy. So he gets his father's money. He's very popular as long as he's spending money. Um, and then he loses it all. And then finally in the end, he discovers what leads to real joy. But when he hits rock bottom, he becomes a slave of his own doing. And he ends up feeding pigs. Then when he reflects on his experience, say, he reflects on his experience and he mourns his selfishness, um, that none of that stuff made him happy, that honest reflection, that mourning, is the beginning of his conversion, of turning back to the house of the father. So it wasn't hitting bot rock bottom that changed him. It was reflection, his mourning, on hitting rock bottom that changed him. That's why Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who allow the sadness of sin to wake them up to return to their father's house. Um, any, does that make any sense? So like, there's a blessedness of mourning our own sins. I want to be able to do that. Um, and I think when you're younger, you're not into crying, especially if you're a man. But any young man who can't cry is a fool. And any old man who can't laugh is the biggest fool. So like, you should be able to examine your life and even examine your sins. So part of the examine that St. Ignatius did was each day, I mean, I do the Dorothy Day way. <clears throat> Think of two, actually, uh, usually more. Two things I say the act of contrition over. Or how I treated somebody that day or my anxiety or my worry. Um, I want to examine my sins to bring me closer to the Eden-like existence. So there is a blessedness in mourning our sins. Um, the second part of that that I often pray is also mourning with others is a blessing. Um, I'm grateful for those who have mourned with me, who helped me carry my cross. Does that make sense? Like I, uh, That's a real blessing. Like, that sounds kind of strange. Um, but... 
I got, you know, you see poverty, and I was talking to this other priest who I really like. Um, who this other priest went to South America, um, and um, really nice guy, but he is the opposite of blessed are those who mourn. Because he's kind of shocked by the poverty in South America. And he's talking about it and says, all I kept thinking was, I'm so grateful that's not my life. Do you not see what's wrong with that statement? Not, oh my God, my brothers and sisters are hungry. Well, thank God I don't have to do that. That betrays a certain selfishness. Does that make sense? And he's a really nice guy. I really like him. But wow, no blessed are those who mourn. If I can see somebody living in a garbage dump and it doesn't wrench up my stomach, there's something wrong with me. Does that make sense? And like, it's kind of funny because he's such a nice guy. I really like him. He's fun. But um, like he just does not, he has no ability for blessed are those who mourn. So he tells the story, he gave this in a homily, which I'm always afraid I'll give a homily like this, but he gives this homily where he said that um, it was uh, Christmas time and he was in Africa on vacation in a safari, but it was Sunday, so he, there's a Catholic church there. He goes to the Catholic church and because Africa... And we have a lot of their priests, but they have a priest shortage in Africa. So um, he goes to this church, and it's Christmas, but there's um, nobody, no priest to celebrate Mass. And so the people gathered together to pray, but they're praying and praying that God would send them a priest. And he gives his homily and says, it was amazing how vibrant their faith is, that they knew God would somehow send them a priest. But it was time for the safari, and one didn't show up, so I left. <laughs> you were the answer! You were the answer to their prayers, and you didn't know it. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, God did send them a priest. They did have faith. You're the one who didn't. <laughs> so I had to tell them, shut up! <laughs> um, but you know, if he had a little blessed of poor in spirit, he could feel their pain and maybe he would have realized, oh, holy cow, I'm the answer to their prayers. I can celebrate the Eucharist with them rather than sit there. Does that make any sense? Um, uh, like, and this is not him. He's a good egg. But um, New York Times did this article on death and regret you know, because usually when people are sick and suffering and death, a lot of pain comes up. Now, do you know who can't mourn at a funeral? Guess what type of person can't mourn at a funeral? A sociopath. Um, that's not a sign of health if you can't mourn. That's a sign of something's broken. Um, or Christ. When Christ sees the, it keeps repeating this. When Christ sees people suffering, in the Greek, there's a Greek word that we don't have um, in English. Uh, I can't pronounce it. But it's the pain in your stomach when you see other people suffering. Haven't you ever seen like, and you get you know that, your stomach just, yeah, we don't have a word for that. So in English, we'll translate it as, oh, he was struck to the heart. But it's such a better Greek word because it's this wrenching of your stomach where your muscles just contract and you want to do something. Does that make sense? Um, there's a blessedness to mourning. 
um, um, there's a blessedness of sharing. Not that you're suffering. There's a blessedness that because you can mourn, you can share in other people's grief. Sociopaths can't do that. Or, you know, there's this great story that was a while ago. This 11-year-old kid was um, diagnosed with this uh, intestinal tumor. And so 13 of his fifth grader friends, because he was going through uh, chemotherapy, they shaved their heads too. And guess what the teacher did? Shaved his head. Um, you know, that's a, I know it's kind, it was a great story because it shows the blessedness of those who are willing to mourn with you. I'm not suffering, but if you're suffering, I am suffering. So how sensitive am I to the needs of others who are hurting? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Um, or as my Sir Eckhart said, you may call God love, you may call goodness, but the best name for God is compassion. God can't help but suffer when we're suffering. Um, so there's a blessedness of joining with other people suffering. You may say that you love Jesus. Words, words, words. But if your heart can't be wrenched up because other people are suffering, you may not be Christian. Or even blessed are those who actually do mourn, who've lost a loved one. Um, I know it's terrible. Grief is a horrible thing. But mourning only shows the depth of our love. If you've never mourned, it's because you've never loved. And what a worthless life that is. Um, grief gives us gravitas. It does not destroy love. Good grief gives us substance. Uh, joy may be overshadowed by grief. But grief also, in the end, um, it creates gravitas. And then they did this study on those who don't grieve. Uh, those who don't grieve suffer more depression. So depression and grief are not the same thing. If you grieve, you come out long-term with more gravitas and substance. Um, and you can say, well, that seems natural. No, a lot of people in the United States, they don't want to grieve. So I'll give you an example. This happened in my former parish. Um, this guy had to divorced his 13 year old son died of cancer great father great family but the wife was weird uh our ex-wife was weird and argument came he wanted to have a mass she did not want a mass she wanted something completely different a celebration of life so the father just gets bullheaded and said no we are going to have a funeral um so of course the place was packed 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 13-year-old kid. And the mother shows up and she takes a front pew, even though she didn't want it. So, And he's upset and says, you know, let it go. There's two aisles. Anyhow, um, this sounds kind of strange. So she went to the funeral. Now, just studies. Those who actually mourn a death turn out happier. If you can't mourn death, you actually end up more screwed up. Then after that, the mother had the celebration of life. And the celebration of life is she wanted things happy, 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 happy. So she invited all his 13-year-old kids to come to the park and play in memory of him. Now, how happy can you be when somebody says, now, I want you guys to play and be happy in memory of him. That's not how human beings work. That's how sociopaths work. Or I really, this is my feeling, I don't like funerals where um, 
I am, did agree to one because they're not Catholic and there's other issues there. But I don't like funerals in uh, what it, funeral homes where you get together and you have a big screen because it's awful. Um, not the funeral home's awful. It's just the service is awful because it's always the same, quote-unquote, celebration of life. And like at the Catholic funeral, you, put the, you place the deceased person's remains in front of the altar as a gift to God and you thank God for their life. And it's heartbreaking, right? But there's something beautiful about it. You call upon the angels and saints to take them to God. Um, it's kind of beautiful. Celebration of life is... Um, you talk about how wonderful the person is and then they always have a slideshow of everything that was happy in their life. And I swear to God, I've done both many, many times. Funerals break people's heart. But they always end up, they start sad and end up with kind of this relief. Celebrations of life. Let's see what you're missing. And there's no talk about God or resurrection. So we're just going to show you pictures of what you'll never have again. Does that make sense? Funerals are a celebration of that they're in heaven, but they're in communion with us. Celebrations of life, you can say, oh, you're 13-year-old boys, go out and celebrate in memory of my son. It doesn't bring any happiness. And they, they've done this study, especially with kids. If you don't mourn right, it screws them up more. And this famous actor um, was on this interview after that study. He said, yeah, my family did that. We weren't religious, and my brother died. And they didn't want anything depressing, so they just, you know, had one of these things. And the next day, we're, I'm sitting at the table where he always sits, and we just don't talk about it. And he said, you know, I, I had to go through therapy as an adult because it just something un, so unnatural. So there is a blessedness uh, to mourning. Rather than running away from grief, grief, the best solution is going through it. And some grief is anger, but some grief is also a lot of grace to face it with. Um, so just trying to say, no, we're going to be happy, happy, happy. Actually, it's easier. If you don't metabolize grief, it doesn't get to peace and this blessedness. So yeah, blessed are those who mourn. I want to, if I see poverty, I want it to break my heart. If I see you suffering, I want it to break my heart. I want to become better at that. So yeah, <clears throat> I pray the one Hail Mary for the blessedness of mourning. My own sins, my own faults, I'm the prodigal son as well. Maybe it'll lead me home. Can you think of somebody in your own life who shows the blessedness of grief? I've known plenty of parishioners who, you know, they are the prodigal son. Reflecting on their own sins, they turn their life around. I know women who had great marriages who after mourning, wow, they really did gain depth of spirit. There's a blessedness. Name somebody in your own life. Um, and the third one is, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. The problem with this one is the definition of the word meek. Technically, the word meek in English, it comes from this German word that means soft, and that's a bad translation. Because the Greek word is proos, and proos is the opposite of violence. Um, proos is the opposite of the need for power and control. So technically, it should be translated nonviolence rather than meek. 
not soft. It's nonviolent. Um, and like in the gospel, in the gospel will say that the priests of the temple were quote-unquote indignant at Jesus because Jesus comes and says, you have made my father's house uh, um, a den of thieves. And the prophecy is that the Messiah will open up religion to us Gentiles and there'll be a new priesthood. And the line for that new priesthood of opening up to the Gentiles is where the prophet says, and he'll say, you have made my father's house a den of thieves. Um, So when Jesus says that, they know exactly what prophecy he's referring to. That the power of the priest will come to an end and there'll be a new priesthood. And at that point, it says they were indignant because he's going to take away their power. So they say to themselves, oh, he's going to die for that. Does that make sense? Um, So Jesus is a threat to their power and control. Um, They're not under the will of God. They're under the will of their own need for power and control. So the need for power is the opposite of proos, meekness. Um, And here's the odd part. I've met married people who spend a lot of their marriage trying to control their spouse and then they complain about priests who are always trying to control their parishioners. And so in my head, I'm like, hey, look in the mirror. Um, <laughs> you know, anyhow, both lack meekness. But, and I like this, the word pros, um, it means strength under control. And it was used to define actually war, how war horses act in battle. Because think about this, when you got a war horse, You'd take a wild stallion, you'd bring them down from the mountains, break them for riding, and some horses were used for pulling wagons or racing, but the best were trained for warfare. So they had to retain their fierce, courageous spirit, but be disciplined to respond to the slightest nudge or pressure from the rider. So they could be galloping straight into battle, 35 miles an hour, and come to a sliding stop at a word. And you had to train them that they weren't afraid of arrows or spears or torches. And later in history, um, uh, Lord Tennyson writes that poem uh, about the charge of the light brigade about horses. They train themselves. They'll go straight into battle. That's power under control or strength under control. The war horse... um, ceased to be um, uh, wild, but actually learned to bring his nature under control. So pros is actually the word for that. It's not soft. So to understand, um, uh, it's not getting rid of power. It's a different type of power. Meekness is uh, harnessing, calm strength, that it doesn't matter the battle in front of me, I'm going to go. And so this sounds kind of strange. Meekness is a little hard to define because on one side, you have power, right? That's the opposite of meekness is power. Um, that, Like the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, you tried to gain as much power and control as possible. That's how that house worked. And I don't know, they did this study on people who seek power. It is like steroids for your worst vices. People who get addicted to power can never give up power. They can never retire, and their worst vices just get exaggerated. 
So the opposite of that is meekness, which is a power, but it's not out of control. It's, I'm not, I have no desire for power. I have no desire to control other people. But it's also the opposite of being powerless. So powerless, it sounds kind of strange. They did this study that being powerless is really bad for you. So the poorest of the poor, those people who feel powerless, much higher rates of heart disease and cancer, et cetera, et cetera. Being powerless or feeling powerless is really, really, it's steroids to your worst medical conditions. And in this middle is a sweet spot of meekness. But I, I desire no power and control, but I'm not affected by powerless. I may be poor and weak, but I am not. Uh, powerless. Does that make sense? I, I'm not affected by either extreme. Meekness is that middle strength. Um, so, like, I like that. Jesus doesn't seek any power, um, but I, uh, that's how we want to be. Nor is he affected by the lack of power. His strength is completely different. You'd have to say it's nonviolent. Or, now, the Romans found this... Uh, a threat, because that's the opposite. You know, when Jesus is coming to Jerusalem and it says, you know, they rip the palm branches, but then it gives this strange thing where they lay down their cloaks. So you have to ask yourself, well, symbolically, what does that mean when you lay down your cloaks? So um, that's what you'd do if a king was coming into town, is uh, people, when you're laying down your cloak, you're laying down your life. So you're voting for a different source of power than the emperor. And the Roman authority figures didn't like what they saw, that the only power that needs be is Caesar and your loyal, your status with Caesar, where you rank closest to Caesar. Laying down your cloaks before Jesus, that's a threat to their power. So um, uh, second thing about meekness is that it's this sweet spot in between powerless and power. Um, the third point I want to make if you pray this prayer is remember, meekness means I don't need to control you. Um, a lot of people, because I'm an angry person, but I notice a lot of anger comes when you're not in control. Uh, I have friends who get really upset because they're not in control. And I had these priests, they're really good priests, but um, uh, they belong to an order. And in the uh, little house of the order, the the house was at this problem because there's two opposing views on this issue. And both groups were trying to manipulate and pressure other people so they vote for their outcome. Does that make sense? And so they're in this deadlock of disagreement. And they asked this uh, one Irish priest, older priest, great guy, to um, uh, make the deciding decision. But he said he wouldn't help because... Uh, each side is trying to manipulate, not out of compassion, but control. And he said, I do agree with one side of the house. I do have a decision. But um, regardless of his political or, or um, theological opinion, like the Irish priest, he said he wouldn't help because you people have made it all about control, and I'm not going to help participate. Does that make sense? It's no longer a theological issue. You've made it political. In whatever way is decided, the other side will be upset. 
Um, so I, I just like that, that. The wise Irish guy said, oh yeah, I do have an opinion on this. I do have a vote, but I'm not going to vote because you've turned it into what's best for the house to a political position. Does that make any sense? Like, it's the Irish priest who showed meekness. I'm not going to be part of this power control. Um, and so some might have the right theological or political opinion sometimes, but they lack meekness. So even if it's the right opinion, the misuse of it will be used for the purpose of Satan. If everything becomes about power, even if you're in the right position, it will be used for Satan. So this need to control, it's like prestige. You need to control your image. Um, an example of somebody of meekness would be Solanus Casey. Um, he's this, actually his parents were Irish, um, Irish um, Franciscan, but tells this interesting story about uh, this one guy who knew him, tells this interesting story that one of the brothers used to just hate him and thought he was a phony and would try and always provoke him. And Solanus Casey could not be provoked because he was meek. Or tells a story about the bees were upset because there's, I don't know, two queen bees in a hive. So he just reaches in and takes out the other queen and never got stuck. But the point being is that he's not afraid, but um, uh, he can't be provoked. That's meekness. That's power under control. Um, so a lot of people think that they're moral because they're firm in their positions, but they lack meekness. So even if they have the right position, because the, uh, the right position can be corrupted, because for them it becomes all about control. Does that explain what meekness is? And why do the meek inherit the land? Well, you know, like, the, the, those who mourn will be comforted. That makes sense. But why, why the land? Why would the meek get the land? Well, in the Old Testament... Um, God warns that when you enter in the promised land, you'll begin to think that you owned it. You'll begin, you'll go into the promised land, and you'll think, oh, I achieved all this by myself, and you'll lose meekness, and then the land will become corrupt. Or there's this Irish priest I know who, um, he was, uh, this is a terrible story, but Ireland at one time, years ago, was a very poor country. Um, and his family was Irish, he left Ireland, came to the United States, became a priest, goes back, several years ago, goes back to Ireland. Ireland was kind of a third world country at one point. Um, and he remembers thinking when he's at Mass, he's, uh, he was remembering thinking, well, thank God I was able to make it to the United States. And he says, you won't believe this, but immediately I heard my mother's voice say, you didn't make it alone! <laughs> And he thought, oh, yeah, my parents, they sacrificed everything. <laughs> like, I think that's so funny. But you enter the land and you kind of think, well, I, I did it all. And you lose all your meekness and you lose the land. And it's the Romans who would overtake other people's land because of lack of meekness. They might be able to invade it, but you can't ever keep it. It's the meek who will enter the land and keep it. Does that make sense? Okay, so think of somebody who has meekness. Now, we've gone one hour, and I didn't leave room for questions. So questions, opinions, objections.
Uh, yeah. Okay, so, um, well, each of them were writing, but um, Luke reorders it for us Gentiles. So um, Luke rearranges the gospel and puts it in themes, but he makes it easy using Gentile symbols and theology. Like if all we had was the gospel of Matthew, if we're Gentiles, it's like, what is all this Jew Jewish stuff? I don't understand Judaism. So he puts it, the gospel in Gentile terms for us. So, Steve. Yeah. Jesus in the garden, he, had, he could have had angels far more powerful at his disposal, but he's willing to suffer. Or the line I like of Jesus on meekness is when he says, my kingdom is not here. Um, when he says that, it doesn't mean the kingdom of heaven is not beginning on earth. What it means is um, he's talking to Pilate. And Pilate is a perfect example of the Roman Empire, of you know, killing your enemy, sabotaging you know, uh, all the you know, world of politics. Jesus' world doesn't operate this way. So he says, my kingdom is not here. Meaning, uh, my, the way my kingdom works is not like that. It's all about power. Like I, I'm kind of extreme, but um, that, and like I would never want to, I'm going to say some harsh things now. Remember, this is supposed to be the thing that marks the Catholic Church is meekness. My problem is um, I, I, you have all these displays of power by bishops. I don't think that's necessarily wrong. There isn't a position of leadership. But sometimes the displays of power are overkill. Do you, you know what I mean? Um, we had a bishop named Bishop Trinan, great bishop, very holy, but you know, he lived in poverty. He had two t-shirts. Besides his clerics, he had a white t-shirt and a green t-shirt. But suddenly, after Bishop Trinan left, the bishop needs a mansion. He needs a dining room that sits 12 people, even though 12 people never sat there. Um, you know, like, this sounds kind of strange, or it sounds awful, but bishops live really, really well. Um, you know, they because, you know, they're bishops. But why do you have to operate that way? Why can't you pray meekness? That, nah, power doesn't... Bishop Trinan had a lot of authority, but never had to overemphasize power. Does that make sense? Um, I think the Catholic Church should be leading the way on that, but I don't think we are. I think many bishops are seduced into a Roman Im imperial way of thinking. I don't know enough bishops, so um, I don't think any of them are bad, but um, most bishops are not that way. I mean, it's amazing. Pope Francis lives in a guest house. Um, or the Polish cardinal I spoke about this weekend, whose name I can't pronounce, 
once again, you know, powerful, but also incredibly meek. Do you, you know what I mean? So, I don't know. But, all right, see, I, got, I ticked people off by talking about the <laughs> clergy. But um, just joking, Mrs. Uh, anyhow, uh, so next week we'll cover the rest of the Beatitudes. So let's end with, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Hello, this is Father Len McMillan. I'd like to take a moment to thank you for listening to our podcast. If they've been a blessing to you, I'd also like to invite you to prayerfully discern supporting the podcast financially. Your generosity would help support the ongoing production and distribution of the podcast. If you'd like to make a donation, you can simply click the link in the podcast description. Be sure to tell us your donation is for the podcast in the comments section of the submission form. Again, thank you for your support as we seek to share the good news of the gospel. May God bless you for your generosity.